And if you would turn with me to John chapter 4. We're going to wrap up this chapter today after several weeks here in John 4. We'll be looking at verses 43 through 54 this morning. John 4, would you join me? After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. And this is the word of the Lord. So we pick up today uh, with Jesus in the Samaritan town of Sychar. This is where we've been for the last three weeks in this town of Sychar. This is where he met the woman at the well, where seemingly a very large portion of the town believed in him and followed him. And at the end of that passage, we learned that they had invited him to spend time there. And so he had spent two days in this town of Sychar, but then he continued on his way. If you remember, Jesus is on a journey at this point. He's on a journey back to Galilee. Uh, he began this journey in Jerusalem back in chapter 2 uh, when Jesus was in Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. Um, this is when he cleared the temple. Uh, it's when he met Nicodemus. Then he headed back to Galilee and, and makes this stopover in the Samaritan uh, region and specifically in the Samaritan town of Sychar. And that's something that seems so characteristic of Jesus as you read the story of Jesus that often it seems like he's headed in a particular direction and then it's like he gets sidetracked or he gets pulled off course uh, by somebody or by something that happens. And yet whenever he gets pulled off course, it always has intention. It always has purpose. Like God is always at work. And Jesus is especially attuned to the ways in which the father is leading. Today, though, we find Jesus making his way back to the place where he had been prior to Jerusalem, the town of Cana, specifically in the region of Galilee. And this was where Jesus turned water into wine back in chapter 2. And today it will also be the place where he does what John calls his second sign. And I don't know about you guys, but I find having a sense of geography here to be really helpful. I don't, I don't know if you're a map person, like if you need to kind of see where things are. Um, but when I, you know what, when I was a kid, um, 
When I was a kid, a lot of the biblical places that were talked about at church just like seemed like mystical places. They seemed like a, a fictitious realm, like we're talking about Middle Earth or something from Lord of the Rings, you know? Like you might as well say, well, Jesus left Rohan and went to Gondor, right? Or Jesus left the Shire and went to Mordor, for all of you Lord of the Rings nerds. That's how I kind of received it as a kid. It was like a fake place, it, 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 but, but it's not, right? And we all know it's not. And one of the reasons why John, the gospel writer here, is so like meticulous about recording the details of where Jesus has been is because he's keeping track of actual movement. Right? He's keeping track of actual places. And if you have a tendency to let this geography just kind of wash over you because you're not familiar with it, I would encourage you as you're studying the scriptures, most good study Bibles have maps and things like that in it, or certainly you can go to Google and look up these things. I would encourage you just to, to kind of get a a spatial awareness for where Jesus is and, and what's going on. Uh, I'll throw up a map that we've got here this morning just so you can get a little bit of an idea. So when John's gospel began, Jesus was down here in Jerusalem, right? He was in the southern region of Israel. And, and then he went up all the way up here into the region of Galilee to the city of Cana, which you'll notice what Cana is near, right? It's, it's very near Nazareth the place where Jesus is from, what he, what he would think of as his hometown. But then Jesus left Cana after the wedding where he turned water into wine, and he came all the way back down to Jerusalem. Now, now this is a great distance. This is like multiple days on foot. And you notice this blue area, it's the area of Samaria. So it's, it's a region that you pretty much have to pass through if you're going to make it all the way up to Galilee. And so now today, you see Sychar just right here in the middle of that blue area. That's where Jesus has been for several days. And now he's got a two or three day journey back up to Cana in Galilee. Over here on the right side, this is the Jordan River that kind of cuts through everything. So we said when Jesus was in Samaria, he was in what would be thought of as the West Bank area today. You'll hear that talked about on the news often today. Um, but then when you get up here into Galilee in the north, you'll notice on the right side, the Jordan River empties into a larger body of water, and that is the Sea of Galilee, right? So this is where Jesus walks on water later in the story. Um, so Galilee is the place, it's the location in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where Jesus does pretty much all of his ministry until he comes down to Jerusalem at the Passover and is arrested and ultimately crucified. But John's gospel is different, as we've said before, in that John is starting earlier in the timeline than the synoptic gospels. He's starting with Jesus in Judea, and then he goes to Galilee, and then he comes back to Judea before ultimately going back to Galilee today, um, and then we kind of pick up with where the synoptic gospels pick up. So is, is that helpful to you guys at all to just kind of just kind of get a sense of this? Obviously, this is the Mediterranean on the far left 
Um, and to look at this in a larger region is helpful too, because you'll see just how close it is to things like Italy and Greece and Spain and North Africa. And um, if you're a part of our church history course starting tonight, we'll look at some of those things and it will become obvious why even though those, those feel to us like far-flung places, they are the places where the church naturally spreads after the ascension of Christ and after the Holy Spirit comes. It naturally goes to North Africa and to Egypt, and it naturally goes to Syria, and it naturally goes over to Italy, to Rome. So hopefully that's helpful to you. Let's pick up this morning verse 44. Verse 44 seems to be a common saying of Jesus in that we find it not only here in John, but we find it in in the synoptic gospels as well. This idea that a prophet is without honor in his hometown. It's sort of like a proverb of sorts. Um, and, And John here is not necessarily quoting Jesus in this moment, but he's he's relaying to us something that Jesus perhaps often says. Um, The synoptic gospels, though, quote Jesus saying, a prophet is without honor in his hometown. And, And most often in the synoptics, it's used in a little bit of a different way in that Jesus will often say this when people in like Nazareth, for example, in his actual hometown or in the region around his hometown, Galilee, are offended by his teaching. Um, And part of their offense is not only the things that he's saying, but it's the fact that they know him on some level, right? That this is this is just some guy from Nazareth. And, And we know his mother. We know his father. We know his brothers. And perhaps some of this stems from what they thought the Messiah would be like. In Matthew 13, uh, we get one of these places where this statement is quoted, and it's Matthew 13, starting in verse 54. You don't have to turn there, but it says, Jesus coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So Jesus comes home, and he goes into the synagogue, and he's teaching. And uh, it says they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And one of the things that kind of continually pops up is that people, people's response to Jesus is he doesn't talk like anybody else. Right? He speaks differently than everybody else. And even people who know him and know his family are taken aback like who does, who does this guy think he is? Like, where, where does he get off speaking in this way? And, and they're, not, they're not bothered only by the words that he's saying or what he's claiming about himself. They're bothered by the fact that they, like, recognize him as just a person who's come out of Nazareth. Right? It's like somebody coming out of Keithful or Blanchard or Houghton or, you know, and, and going, hey, I'm actually the Messiah, Right. I I am the son of God. I only do what I see the father doing. And we're like, bro, you're from Keithful. Right. Like that same kind of thing is going on right now. It's like you're just from around here. And there seems to be 
a popular notion among the Jews that when the Messiah comes, that he's just going to kind of appear out of nowhere, that he's going to sort of materialize or maybe even come down from heaven in some way, that he's not going to be like a normal person. He's not going to be somebody that was born and then lived in a little village and then grew up and, you know, like apprenticed to his father and whatever his father's trade was and had friends and knew people and has brothers and sisters. That just wasn't on people's radar at all. So when Jesus comes onto the scene, proclaiming the gospel and speaking with authority and calling people to repentance... These folks who know him and know his family are like, eh, what? What's going on here? A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household as well, Jesus says in Matthew. Here in John, this statement is used a little bit differently. It's used almost as a reasoning or a justification for going back to the place where Jesus is from. And I think we're meant to compare the extreme honor and followership that Jesus has received in the Samaritan village of Sychar to the lack of honor and respect that he receives when he comes back into Galilee, right? He's been in this place where people who shouldn't believe in him are bending over backwards to honor him. Please stay with us. Please remain here. And, and yet he, he says, I, like, I have to go back to the place where I'm from. And it's a place where I'm probably not going to be received in the same way or given this amount of fanfare. Verse 45, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, it says, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Now, now don't don't read too much into this. Like, it doesn't say they believed in him or they followed him. It just says they welcomed him because they were aware of what he had done at the feast in Jerusalem. We're talking about the feast of Passover, um, back starting in chapter 2, where Jesus, like any other good Jew, had gone up to Jerusalem for Passover. That's when he cleared the temple. It's when he drove out the animals and the money changers. Um... It was something that greatly angered the rulers of the temple, but it captivated people. John told us in chapter 2, verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So when he was in a place that wasn't his hometown, and he's saying the things he's saying, he's... Uh, uh, performing these actions, performing these signs, John might say, with authority. He's driving people out of the temple. He's causing an uproar. He's speaking as one with authority. Many believed in his name, and, and certainly there was a big hubbub that was stirred up around Jesus. He definitely caused a stir in Jerusalem. And as he comes back into the place where he's from, there's a good bit of curiosity, at the very least, surrounding him. Not only that, if you remember before Jesus had gone to the Passover feast in Jerusalem, he had performed what John called his first sign. Do you notice at the end of our passage this morning, he said this is the second sign. He had performed the first sign at the wedding at Cana in Galilee when he turned water into wine. And throughout this gospel account, John is like specifically ticking off for us things that he sees as primary evidence of Jesus' divinity. 
And he's doing this because he's writing this gospel with, an, with a different intention than the other three, than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The other three gospels were primarily written for the church. You could say they were primarily written for believers so that the church would know the story of Jesus, the, the message of the gospel, and so that the church would continue to pass that down from generation to generation. And John's gospel certainly serves that purpose. Obviously, we're the church. We're here talking about John's gospel today. But also John had another audience in mind as well. People who didn't already believe. Both Jews and Gentiles. And for this reason, he's sometimes referred to not just as John the Apostle or John the Gospel writer. He's often referred to as John the Evangelist. John the Evangelist. And he even states this plainly later in chapter 1 when he says, Now Jesus did many signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So, so John kind of puts his thesis at the end of this book. Why am I writing this? I'm writing this so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. Now, notice those are two designations, that he is Christ, that he is Messiah, the long-foretold one, that he is the Son of God, right? So he is God himself. He is the Logos of God. He is the Word of God, as he said in chapter 1. And so that you would know that believing in his name results in life, right? It results in eternal life. That, John says, is why I'm writing this. That is what I hope the outcome of you reading this and studying this would be. So his explicit stated intention here is that people would read this, see the signs that Jesus has done, and believe in his name. Also, we have to remember when John was writing this. It's probably the last gospel to be written, written sometime perhaps between 70 and 100 A.D. So if Jesus is crucified around 30 A.D., John is writing, uh, you know, possibly 30, 40, 50 years later. And that's significant because the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. Um, and that was a major dramatic, cataclysmic event for the Jews. Like, we just can't overstate how devastating the destruction of the temple would have been for devout Jews, for people like the Pharisees, for people like the Sadducees. The destruction of the temple was a major thing, and John more than likely is writing this gospel after that has happened. So when he says things, like in chapter 2, when Jesus was in Jerusalem for Passover, and he drives out the money changers and the animals, and he says, tear down this temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it, and it says the disciples realized, man, he's talking about the temple of his body. That was a significant thing for John, who's writing after that actual temple has now been destroyed. Does that make sense? Do you, do you see why that would be a significant thing? So Peter Walker in his book, Jesus in the Holy City, says, if any of John's readers felt bereft of the temple and of the spiritual focus provided in Jerusalem, John would have encouraged them not to mourn the loss of the city, but rather to see what God has done for them in Jesus. The evangelist, John, writing of the after the temple's destruction, does not bemoan its loss, 
The presence of God has not been withdrawn, for Jesus has taken the place of the temple. Jesus gives more than the temple has ever given. Jesus stands in the place of everything that Israel has lost. So don't miss that. It is significant. Jesus is the new temple. And we've talked about this before. And as Peter Walker said, he gives more than that previous temple ever gave. Right? And he stands in the place of anything that Israel lost when that temple was destroyed. And I think that's what John wants us to see in these quote-unquote signs that Jesus does, these things that he illuminates for us. Um, we talked about these a little bit back uh, in the message on uh, the wedding at Cana in chapter 2. But the Greek word that is used here for signs refers to something that identifies a person. Um, so, so not just a, a signifier or a symbol, but something that reveals the identity of something else. And what John does here is he gives us seven or eight signs, things that he specifically refers to as signs for us to consider. And all of these are things that we would think of as miracles. They are large miracles, big miracles. Um, but in John's mind, I think they're major miracles that identify Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of God, as the one through whom we find life. That we would look at these things, even though we weren't present for them physically, even though we weren't there, we didn't see them that we would read about them and go, oh yeah, this is him. This is really him. So those seven or eight miracles or signs are uh, turning water into wine, chapter two. Uh, this exchange we find today with the official's son and healing the official's son here in John four. Next would be hearing, healing the paralytic at the pool which we'll encounter next week in John 5. Uh, after that is feeding the 5,000 in John 6. Um, and then following that is Jesus walking on water in John 6. Which some, sometimes people want to put those two together, the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water, because they're kind of a part of the same story. Uh, the next would be Jesus healing a man born blind. And then the final sign before the penultimate sign, which is his resurrection, is him raising Lazarus from the dead. So John, the gospel writer, says these are the major things that I want to illuminate for my readers as primary evidence of Jesus's deity, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the son of God and that we find life in his name. Look at verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. So notice we don't know much about this person at all. Uh, John does not go into great detail about what kind of official or who he is or what his story is. Um, and sometimes this story gets conflated with another a similar account that we find in the Synoptic Gospels where Jesus heals a Roman centurion's servant. Um, but this is a decidedly different account. There are some similarities. The main similarity is that Jesus heals that man's servant also from a great distance away. Jesus is not physically present when the servant is healed. 
Um, but other than that, there, there are a number of differences between that and the account we find in the synoptics. Uh, we don't know if this man's a Jew or a Gentile. Uh, or what kind of official he is specifically. Some translations will add the word royal, that he's a royal official, which perhaps indicates that he was serving in the court of Herod Antipas. Uh, Herod Antipas would have been a Jewish regional king. He's really a puppet of the Roman government. He didn't have a lot of authority uh, outside of the Roman government. And so maybe this person was an official serving in his court. I think traditionally this person is thought of as being a Gentile and, and perhaps also being a centurion, but that's more kind of speculative. It's more legend-ish in nature. Um, but I do think it's interesting because if you consider the people that Jesus has had exchanges with over these last couple of chapters, if this person is a Gentile, and in particular if he's, if he's a Roman, it means that Jesus has had an exchange at the beginning of chapter 3 with a ruler among the Jews, Nicodemus, and then he has an exchange with a Samaritan woman at a, at a well, a woman of lowly status comparatively to Nicodemus. And now here he has had an exchange potentially with a Gentile, possibly a Roman centurion who's an official um, within the region of Galilee. And, and so if, if that is the case then Jesus has had an exchange here, a gospel exchange with three completely different kinds of people, only one of which is actually a Jew or, and what would be thought of as a good Jew, right? Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is the only one who is kind of like, yeah, I'm not so sure, right? Nicodemus is the only one who we don't immediately get a sense of what his response is to Christ, and I think that's fascinating if that is the case, because it is kind of both literally and symbolically pointing us to the fact that the gospel of Christ is truly for the whole world. You know, as, as the New Testament will often say, uh, for the Jew first, but also for the Gentile, right? Isn't that fascinating? Verse 47, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go and your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Now, it, it seems there, it feels like Jesus rebukes this guy. In verse 48, like if, if you don't see signs and wonders, you won't believe. But remember that there's probably a crowd of Galilean Jews around who are fascinated by Jesus because of what they had heard about at the feast. Right. They're welcoming him because of these signs and wonders that he has done in Jerusalem. And, and so more than likely, as he's addressing this official, there are other people who are listening in. It's like um, these people who Jesus often encounters who just want to see his magic tricks, right? Like, what's the next thing you're going to do? You know, by the time he feeds the crowd that I mentioned, you know, 5,000 men are following him out in the wilderness, not including women and children. They're only counting men at this point in time for some reason. So this is a massive crowd of people that's following Jesus around. And certainly everybody was not a believer Everybody had not, like, followed Christ in, in faith and repentance. Like, they're literally coming out, many of them, to just see what the next spectacle is going to be. And that, that seems to be something that wearies 
Jesus. There's something that kind of makes him go, (sighs) like, do you not get it? Like, I am not just here to, like, do uh, these sort of miraculous things so that you'll be wowed by them, so that you can kind of ooh and awe over the spectacle of it. So it feels like Jesus rebukes them. But I would also throw out to you, because we kind of do this too, like we want Jesus, we want Jesus to do big things for us. We're often uh, guilty of not being impressed with him in just the day-to-day ways that he provides for us and takes care of us, right? The things we feel entitled to, right? Things that we don't even think about. I woke up this morning, I'm breathing, right? I have food on the table. My, my children are healthy. I'm he- like th- just these things that on a day-to-day basis in the world that we live in are to some extent miraculous in and of themselves, right? That we are sustained and provided for and that we're allowed to perpetuate and then we have blessings and good things in our lives. And we're, but yet when things get harder, Jesus, I need you to do this big sign for me. I need you to do this big thing for me. Or if I'm making a decision, Lord, give me a sign so that I can know what to do. Even Jesus' disciples were guilty of this as well. Most notably, I think about Thomas, right? Who, after Jesus rose from the dead, Thomas heard about it and he said, look, if I can't touch him, if I can't see the wounds, I will never believe and then Jesus appears and goes, hey, hey, Thomas, touch me, right? See, see the wounds in my hands. And, and, and then Jesus tells Thomas in John 20, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who, ha- who have not seen and have yet believed, right? So John's readers Blessed are those who have not actually seen and have yet believed. The the very people like you and me, who John is writing to here, who are not present, who haven't physically put our hands in his side or in in the indention in his palm or his wrist. Blessed are you who have not seen and have yet believed. I think this is largely what the writer of Hebrews is talking about in Hebrews 11. Like in his famous chapter on faith, he begins that chapter by saying, now faith, in this famous verse, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Seize on that word hope. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. He says, for by it it being faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. This is really the level of spirituality that Jesus is after here. Jesus is after that level where I don't have to see it. I still believe it and that belief is converting into faith, which is this source of hope for me. Even though I haven't seen it, the hope of my life is in the validity and the truthfulness of these things. The belief isn't simply tied to one miraculous event, but belief that goes past that one miraculous event to become hope. That's why faith is such a a central component for the church, the the believers who are living after the time of the incarnation, 
the time where I can hear Jesus speaking and I can see him walking and I can see his miracles and I can put my hand in his side. We are presented with the accounts of those things secondhand, aren't we? And the question isn't simply, do you believe that he did those things and that he is the son of God? The question is, does that belief in the validity of Christ translate into hope for a future that you have not yet seen? It's one thing to say, I believe that accounts such as the gospel of John are real and valid, that these things actually happen. It's another thing to say that that belief has evolved into abiding faith that because these things are real, I literally have nothing to worry about. Even though all the signs around me and the world around us today would, would, would scream at me, I have everything to worry about. That, that if this is true, if what... Jesus has done is real, and even though I haven't seen it, that because my belief has been placed there, my faith has grown out of that belief, that this is my hope, not in the things of this world, but in the things of Christ. As I've been studying church history in preparation for this new course that we're launching, I've been just reminded of how tangible that faith was for the early church living in an age of persecution unlike anything you and I have ever experienced. Not just people uh, saying that what they believed wasn't real or true, but who were being brutally tortured, murdered, often in public, for sport, for entertainment. And yet faith in Christ for many in the early church rendered their potential death a veritable non-issue. They were so convinced that Christ was real and that what he had done for them would result in eternal life and ultimately in actual physical resurrection for them as well. That going to their death was like a non-issue. They went there willingly and joyfully in many cases. And there are all kinds of like secular histories that are written about how the witness of Christians, it wasn't necessarily this witness of, hey, can I tell you about Jesus? It wasn't necessarily this, this like cold call evangelism type witness that maybe you grew up hearing about in the church where I walk in the convenience store and I've got to share my faith or the gospel with the guy behind the counter. The witness of the early church was this witness of, I am like going to my death joyfully and 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 the way that i'm dying in the arena or in front of other people is completely different from the way that other criminals are dying in the arena fearfully and like groveling and you know like screaming for their lives the christians are going and they're praising the lord the whole way and they're singing to the lord and they're reciting scripture I mean, it's just this incredible spectacle. And there are numerous secular historians who point to the validity of the fact that many in the Roman Empire come to faith in Christ purely through watching Christians die and the way that they died. Their faith, their hope, was in things unseen. And it led them to give everything for Jesus. Verse 51 as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. And he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, probably around 1 p.m. when the fever left him, 
The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he believed himself and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So let me ask you guys this morning. Um, more than likely, you've all seen miraculous things, even if you don't think of them as miraculous things. Um, even if you've explained them away in human terms. More than likely, you've had people in your life who were ill, and you prayed for them, and they were healed. And you may go, well, it's medical science. Well, who do you think invented medical science? Right? Where do you think that comes from? You think that's just us? God doesn't have anything to do with that? But does your belief in things that are unseen just produce like some intellectual knowledge for you, or does it truly produce hope in your life? That when our world is a complete mess, as we've talked about in recent weeks, when things in your life could appear hopeless, when you have the potential to be consumed by worry and anxiety and depression, do you find that your faith in Christ is actually producing joy? That it's actually producing this fruit of the spirit that we talk about? One of the things that we talk a lot about around here is having an awareness of God's presence in the everyday, that, that God is not just far off somewhere kind of w watching from heaven, but that God is present and active in our day-to-day, -day, and that we are all guilty of just kind of blowing through life without having an awareness of his presence and, and, and the way that he is with us in the day-to-day. -day. And, and so oftentimes when we gather together at things like family meal, we'll ask questions like, how have you seen God at work in the world around you? Um, and for some people who are more tuned to those things, that's a very easy uh, question to answer. For some people, yeah, I got to kind of think about it a little bit. Where have I seen God at work? Um, and it's, it's a question we ask because I think we all have to cultivate an awareness of his presence. We all have to uh, essentially wake up in the morning and, and attune our minds and our hearts to the reality of God, the reality of Jesus, the reality of his presence in our lives and in our world, not just around us, but also in us, by the way, the indwelling Holy Spirit. And I'm of the conviction that this is essential if we are going to be a people who truly walk by faith and not by sight. That like being aware that God is seeking to lead us from the inside out and that God is working in the world around us, at least for me, has tremendous impact. This may seem like a really silly story to you, but I was out for a run this week. Yes, believe it. Um, <laughs> I, and I was running in a part of uh, town I don't ever run in. I, I, uh, one of the kids had something in South Shreveport, and so I dropped her off, and I went for a run out in a neighborhood off Ellerby. And I'm running through a neighborhood, middle of the day, it's so hot, and a little ways down, maybe a block down the, the road, I see a house uh, that has the sprinklers going. And one of the sprinkler heads is just like pointed out into the street. And I'm like, oh, sweet. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run through this sprinkler. I'm going to get a little mist. It's going to be nice. It's going to be cooling. And as I got closer, the sprinkler had turned and was, like, backwatering the yard again. And it was kind of like a drop down into these people's yard. And I'm, like, getting closer and closer. And I'm seriously contemplating, 
just running down into their yard, you know, but I'm going, oh, is it muddy down there? What's going, you know? So right as I get to the point where it was watering the street and I would have run through it, I smell it. It's the septic system. It's the septic sprinklers spraying poo water, right, all over the yard. And I said, thank you, Lord, <laughs> that I didn't just run through that sprinkler and still, and like suddenly smell like a biohazard, right, for the rest of my run. And that may seem silly to you, but, but like, I, like that was my first thought, was like, thank you, God. Now, now, some of you may go, God doesn't care about the sprinklers, or God isn't moving those things around so that you don't run through the poo water. And, and I say, why, why not, right? Like, God is omnipresent. God loves us and cares for us. He is active in the world around us. And here is this father who comes to Jesus and it's, it's like at this point where maybe this is a last-ditch effort, right? Maybe we've exhausted all other possibilities, and I'm going to ask this person I don't know who seems to be some kind of holy man or some kind of doer of signs, please save my son. And Jesus, I think, longs for a people who don't need that, and yet, because of his great compassion and his great love, he heals this man's son. And this man sees what Jesus has done, and it translates into belief, not just for him, but for his entire household. And so for you guys, let me, let me just close with this question. What is the Lord doing in your life that is increasing your hope Right? Like, what do you see him bringing about? What do you see? How do you see him providing for you, caring for you in, in, in the big things and in the small things? It doesn't have to be, he saved my child from death. Right? W what is God doing in the world around you? And, and in particular, what is he calling you to as a result of his restorative action in your life here and now? We, we talk about this all the time, but, I, but it is the mission of the church. Who has God put in your path, right? Who, who is in your neighborhood? Who is in your workplace? Who has he called you to be actively praying for? Who is in your church community? We have been blessed through Christ and sent out as the body of Christ into our world to be a blessing to those around us. Not just to help people or be kind people or be loving people, but to literally be Jesus to people, to come with the kindness and love and grace and forgiveness of Christ and the literal words of life, the literal words of the gospel. And that's our mission as a church, guys. That's like our mission statement, that we'd be, we would be a people who declare and demonstrate the gospel in Jesus, of Jesus in all of life. Declare and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus in all of life. Not just to talk about how good Jesus is, but to literally show people in our lives how good he is. And, and, and when that elicits a question, that we're ready to talk about why we do the things we do, why we live the way we live. This early church, they were called to be a people set apart. And one of the primary ways that they were set apart was their faith. It was the hope that they had 
that Jesus was who he claimed to be, and that through his life, death, and resurrection, we also would have life and resurrection. And so let us go to him in prayer this morning in thanks and praise for what he has done for us, not only for this man, but for us through Christ as well. Father, we thank you for your grace and love. We thank you for the miraculous things you have done for us, namely sending your only son to die and to rise from the dead so that we might be reconciled to you. Father, we thank you that on this Pentecost Sunday, that you have also in your grace extended your Holy Spirit to us. And Lord, help us to be a people that don't just claim that, but be, help us to be a people who are living out of that place, seeking to listen to and be aware of the Spirit's movement and be obedient to your movement in our lives, Father. Help us to see how you are working in and around us, how you're working in the lives of people around us. And God, may we hear the still, small voice of you as you guide us. Father, truly help us to find our hope centered in you and turn our, turn our eyes and our minds and our hearts away from the things of this world that would bring us fear or worry or anxiety, things that would tell us that you aren't the hope of the world, you aren't the light of the world. God, help us to shut out those voices and to increase the time spent with your holy scripture and in meditation on scripture and in prayer to you, seeking to center ourselves on your truth and your word so that we might live out of that place. That is the purpose of the discipline that you've given us. And help it to be something that truly changes our, not just our eternity, but our state of being now so that we might be the people that you've called us to be in this world. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Stand with us.